Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide as you explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. Fifty years ago this summer, 1969 to be exact, the space race pitting the United States against the Soviet Union was reaching the proverbial finish line. The only question that remained was who would land on the moon first. Over the next four episodes, we will explore the history behind the contributions made by Americans, and more specifically Missourians, to not only explore the far reaches of space, but also to land a person on the moon. So, let's prepare for launch. Quality, go. Mercury capsule. Go. Seconds counting eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. The clock is operating. We're underway. Roger, we're programming and roll okay. A little bumpy along about here. Stand by for 20 seconds. Today's episode takes us to the heart of what became known as the Space Race. With the successful launch of Sputnik by the Soviet Union in 1957, the United States felt it had fallen far behind its Cold War rival technologically. Though the U.S. was in the process of developing its own satellites at the time, Sputnik ushered in an era where space dominated the world's attention. In the midst of the Space Race, companies around the United States vied for the opportunity to lift the nation out of its assumed technological inferiority and into the stratosphere. Yet for two of the first major projects of the space race, Mercury and Gemini, NASA and the United States government turned to St. Louis-based McDonnell Aircraft Company. Despite his base of operations being located in the state, McDonnell Aircraft's founder James Smith McDonnell Jr. was not a native Missourian. Born in Denver, Colorado in 1899, he spent much of his early life in Arkansas. In fact, according to the census, James Jr. was the only member of his family born outside of the South. His father, James Smith McDonald Sr., was a successful businessman in and around Little Rock in the first two decades of the 20th century. And after graduating from Little Rock High School, McDonald enrolled briefly at Princeton University before serving for a short period of time in the U.S. Army during World War I. Upon being discharged, McDonald re-enrolled at Princeton and completed a bachelor's degree in physics in 1921. 
Inspired by some early experiences with airplanes, McDonald saw two paths forward. First, he could continue his education through graduate work in aeronautical engineering. Or second, he could re-enlist in the United States Army to join the Air Corps. Interestingly, he took both paths. He initially re-enrolled for graduate work at MIT before leaving the school to move to Texas to attend the Army Air Corps Flying School. This brief sojourn into the Southland introduced him to the growing field of aeronautics, as well as up-and-coming aviators like Charles Lindbergh. But he opted to return to MIT to complete his master's degree. Upon earning his degree, McDonald spent much of the remaining 1920s bouncing around between various airplane companies, including Huff Dowen, Consolidated Aircraft Company, and Stout Metal Airplane within the aviation division of the Ford Motor Company. After being fired from Ford for the alleged crime of wearing knickers to work, he was employed by one more company, Hamilton Aero Manufacturing Company, before venturing out on his own to form J.S. McDonald & Associates. James McDonald's decision to go out on his own coincided with the nationwide competition put on by Harry F. Guggenheim to design and build newer and safer airplanes. McDonald's doodlebug showed immense early promise in its testing around Milwaukee, but mechanical setbacks plagued the project. McDonald had to ask for his time extension just to get the doodlebug to the site of the competition in New York. The doodlebug was well on its way to a strong showing in the competition when it suffered major damage on an emergency landing. The airplane was quickly sent back to Milwaukee for repairs, but it again suffered mechanical issues and was forced to withdraw from the competition. Not long after the doodlebug's disappointing showing, and with the Great Depression setting in, J.S. McDonald and Associates disbanded. McDonald spent the dark days of the Great Depression moving around as he had in the 1920s between aircraft companies. He first joined Great Lakes, but quickly moved to Glen L. Martin Aircraft Company. He rose through the ranks of Martin Aircraft to become chief engineer by the end of the 1930s, yet the hope of owning his own company remained in the back of his mind. With war in Europe on the horizon, the now 40-year-old pilot engineer made plans to venture out on his own once more. In 1939, he started McDonnell Aircraft Corporation. His decision to start his own company was not surprising, but the location of its headquarters, St. Louis, was. To McDonnell, St. Louis just made sense. Its location in the Midwest allowed it to cushion from eastern and western aircraft companies. Additionally, the city had a large population as well as a sizable airport at Lambert Field. The origins of the McDonnell Aircraft Corporation were humble to say the least. Located in a building rented from American Airlines, the company had less than 10 employees for its first few years. Yet the dawn of World War II brought a dramatic increase in business through military contracts. Though it had not yet sold a significant airplane prototype, the company emerged from World War II as the largest supplier of airplane parts in St. Louis. It also became a significant employer in St. Louis as its employee population topped 5,000. Producing parts for the war proved so lucrative that McDonald soon opened a second factory in nearby Memphis, Tennessee. With its quick growth, McDonald was soon invited to participate in projects designed to develop new jet-propelled aircraft through the U.S. government. McDonald's first notable jet aircraft was the XFD-1 Phantom. The Phantom was followed by Banshee, Demon, and Voodoo. This increase in jet production led the company to increase its workforce to roughly 14,000 employees by the early 1950s to meet the demands of the new Cold War. The efforts of the U.S. military to compete with the Soviet Union impacted McDonald's jet aircraft program as well as its up-and-coming rocket program. Yet the greatest impact was felt through NASA's decision to select McDonald as the main contractor on the new Project Mercury. Begun in 1958, Project Mercury was the United States' first substantial attempt at manned spacecraft. Launched soon after Sputnik, NASA hoped that each mission of Project Mercury would put an astronaut into space and return them safely back to Earth. Over the first three years of the program, rocket tests and experiments dominated the agenda. Yet, when cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin completed the first orbit of Earth in a manned capsule in April 1961, the pressure on NASA and the Mercury 7 astronauts intensified. Less than a month later, May 5, 1961, Alan Shepard, a 37-year-old naval aviator, became the first American in space during a suborbital flight aboard Freedom 7. Gus Grissom soon followed with his own suborbital flight in July 1961. 
By early 1962, thanks to John Glenn's three successful trips around the Earth, the American space program was catching up to the Soviets, and Project Mercury was a resounding success. In St. Louis, the entire city, including within the halls of McDonnell, was abuzz with news of Mercury. When you went out to a party anywhere, and, some, and you said you worked on the Mercury program, wow! You were the center of attention. Attention. They all ask you about the astronauts and what you do now and all that stuff. At McDonald, as they had done since the start of the project, employees worked to design, build, and test the capsules that would carry each Mercury 7 astronaut into space. It was a team effort, and everybody was always gung-ho to get the job done and get it done right and on schedule. And that was the primary effort. And, of course, the schedule was very important. Uh, because the, uh, especially on Mercury program, we were under the gun to try to get a man in space uh, because the Russian uh, beating us in that attitude. And I saw, you know, a lot of things. Uh, they were doing the, uh, the pig tests. Uh, the monkeys were around. Uh, they had altitude chamber runs. And this is all new stuff, Greek, to us kids. We didn't know anything, but we learned as we went along. And uh, we saw how they made the inner skin of pie sections. They made the outer skin of pie sections. They riveted these two together. And those are like two... I think they're 016, each one of them thick can. Uh, I can remember the inner skin. We set it on a big table with a bunch of what they call dum-dum. It's like a big bunch of mud, and we set it into that and then put a plate on the top and screwed it down and pumped air in there and then put soap on the outside to see if there was any leaks in this spacecraft, all kind of weird stuff like that. When the capsules were ready for testing, the astronauts arrived at McDonald and quickly got to work familiarizing themselves with the equipment. I think that probably um, my work with... Um, uh, with the astronauts was probably one of my most interesting uh, uh, times. I, I enjoyed working with the astronauts and, and uh, making sure that uh, they understood uh, what we were doing in the way of, of making the spacecraft. And um, so uh, I, I enjoyed that very much, working with them. Uh, and, uh, they, they were a good group of young men who, who uh, uh, really were dedicated to uh, making that a successful program, which they did, of course. Blame. The progress of the program very carefully, and, and I don't blame them. They were going to fly those things, and they right. wanted to make sure that they knew what was going into them and how they were operating. So uh, uh, that they, they spent a lot of time at the plant, and, and with the engineering department, too, to make sure that the engineering was as uh, they liked it. As the original Mercury 7 astronauts prepared for their inaugural space flights, NASA was already thinking of the next steps in the race to the moon, Project Gemini and Apollo. While Apollo would ultimately be the series of missions that landed humans on the moon, Gemini was meant to serve as a bridge between the orbital flights of Mercury and the landing procedures of Apollo. As it had done for Mercury, McDonnell Aircraft was selected to design the Gemini capsules. Project Gemini had several important goals on its checklist, and McDonnell employees knew that their work would be a little different this time around. The Gemini program was a specific program uh, designed to um, assure that two spacecraft could rendezvous uh, and um, dock together in space. Uh, this was in preparation for the moon landing, where the moon lander, after um, uh, performing its duties on uh, uh, the moon, would um, uh, transfer back and rendezvous with the mothership uh, and um, uh, rendezvous and dock with it and bring the um, 
uh, astronauts back home. Now I was responsible for the strength of the cabin section on the Gemini spacecraft. I worked on Mercury before and got some experience. And then on the Gemini spacecraft, I remember that the hatches were quite a problem. Hatches had to pop open in a quarter of a second to allow the astronauts to uh, eject and come down on a parachute in case of trouble on the launching pad or during early flight. In addition to docking and ejection tests, the Gemini capsules would also need to withstand a longer duration in orbit. While all the Project Mercury missions had lasted less than 36 hours, Gemini missions were scheduled to last at least a week. It was also expected that astronauts would exit the capsule while in orbit and perform spacewalks. In 1965, Gemini 3 lifted off from Cape Kennedy with Gus Grissom and John Young aboard. Over the next year and a half, nine more missions successfully launched and checked key items off the list in preparation for Apollo. Having served as the command pilot of Gemini 3 and as the second American in space aboard Liberty Bell 7, Gus Grissom was selected to lead the Apollo 1 mission in 1967. Apollo 1, however, would be a tragic start for what was supposed to be the final step leading to the moon. Its crew of Roger Chaffee, Ed White, and Gus Grissom were killed during a launch run-through when a fire destroyed the command module's cockpit. News of the three astronauts' deaths sent shockwaves around the nation, particularly at McDonnell, where White and Grissom had visited prior to their Mercury and Gemini missions. I, uh, I worked the most with uh, Gus Grissom, even though I, I met most of the Mercury astronauts and worked with some of them on simulated flights. But Gus was the engineering representative of the seven astronauts, and because our, our procedures were not exactly the same as, as CAPES, I did work a little with him in, in running through our procedures and uh, ensuring him that we were duplicating what, what the CAPE was doing. So he came in on Spacecraft 11, which is the one that he flew in, in, in the infamous uh, hatch-blowing incident. And uh, he was riding, uh, the, all the astronauts liked to ride the spacecraft and simulated flights as soon as they could, so they used to come in. So get, Gus was in there, and we ran our simulated flight, which was a selling point for, this, for the spacecraft. And we went through the whole thing. It was really great. And at the very end, there are three modes of abortion, aborts. You know, it was a hand abort, a UHF, and a VHF abort. And we said, well, Gus, we just have to go through the abort sequence, and we're finished. So we asked Bus to, but, uh, Gus to, uh, to initiate the hand uh, abort. Nothing happened. And I told the communications people to use the UHF. Nothing happened. The HF, nothing happened. And he would have crashed. <laughs> and so I, I told Gus, we have to do some troubleshooting, and you'll have to come back and do these modes after we figure out and fix it. So as he stepped out of the spacecraft, he said, well, that's why we have seven of us. And I think that show, showed the attitude of most of these astronauts. They, were, they knew they were at risk, and things would happen. And unfortunately, you know, he, he, he ended up in the Apollo fire. Deaths of Grissom, Chaffee, and White would not be the only fatalities to mar the efforts of the United States to land on the moon. On February 28, 1966, astronauts Charles Bassett and Elliot Say were scheduled to visit the McDonald facility in St. Louis for routine spacecraft evaluations in preparation for Gemini 9. As morning rush hour traffic dissipated along nearby Interstate 70, the Northrop T-38 Talon carrying both men crashed in low visibility as it came towards Lambert Field. Our offices were on the balcony of 101 in the north, uh, northeast end of the building, whereas right across the building, in the uh, northwest where was the clean room and the, uh, and the control room. 
and uh, what say Elliot say Elliot say and Charles Bassett were flying in to to run one of our altitude chamber tests and they stalled out and hit the bit, uh, 101 building and they hit it right in the area of the white room but fortunately when they impacted the building as i looked at it after after the accident they hit right over a column which i th i feel kept them in the truss structure of the ceiling and the air and the airplane just penetrated the ceiling and actually uh I had a, a view when I heard the impact. I looked back over my shoulder and I saw Rex Barnes, who was working for me, running to the east with a fireball close behind him. And all of a sudden, a huge deluge of water came in and put out the flyer, fire. And the airplane continued through the building and into the parking lot, almost to the, uh, to the end of Building 105. And it was about 30 foot from 105. And of course, it damaged a lot of cars or destroyed a lot of cars. But unfortunately, no one was hurt. And if they would have been 10 feet lower, they would have wiped out the white room, the P personnel, and about three spacecraft, and probably would have proceeded in our area. And if they were 30 feet over, they would have wiped out 105, which contained the central computer system for the whole company. We had office space in this building 101 on the on what would be the second floor mm -hmm. that part of the building and uh but there was a preference for the coffee that was available in a coffee machine and you know a short distance away in the other building so i went there to get a cup of coffee and i was in this passageway and i saw the smoke coming up out of the building I was about to go into, mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> which uh, that was, you know, that was what came to my attention. Mm -hmm. And so I walked into the office and uh, the office space that I had, and I mentioned to some people that I don't know what's happening here, but it looks like this building's on fire. Mm -hmm. And then a guy had a call on the phone from somebody way across the airport mm -hmm. and said, uh, hey, your building's on fire. Uh -huh. And so there weren't any alarms or anything like that that, mm -hmm. I, that I remember. But sure. I said, well, look, I, I don't know about you, but I'm getting out of here. <laughs> yeah. And I did. I, uh -huh. you know, I made my way to the nearest exit until mm -hmm. we could find out what was happening. Mm -hmm. and I, I do not remember how long it took to know what actually happened. It was a big deal because anything would be a big deal if it hits your building. Sure. But these individuals were, you know, they, they, they were special people, put it that way. In the aftermath of Bassett and Say's deaths, the crews of the remaining Gemini missions were reshuffled. Thomas Strafford and Eugene Sairman now headed Gemini 9, with Jim Level and Buzz Aldrin moved into position as the backup crew. Level and Aldrin served as the lead crew for Gemini 12, which put them in prime position for the Apollo program. While Lovell served on Apollo 8 and the ill-fated Apollo 13, Aldrin served on Apollo 11 and was the second person to step foot on the moon. Though the Apollo mission served as a successful culmination in the race to the moon, McDonnell Aircraft was not selected to design the capsules for that project. Instead, McDonnell, which merged with the California-based Douglas Aircraft Company in 1967 to form McDonnell Douglas, was contracted to work with NASA on Skylab, an ambitious project that ultimately launched the United States' first space station into orbit in the 1970s. 
Outside of its space program, McDonnell Douglas spent the 1970s developing commercial airplanes like the DC-10 and major military innovations like the F-15 Eagle, F-A-18 Hornet, and the Harpoon Missile. Having taken his company from a small rented building on the grounds of St. Louis's Lambert Field to the far reaches of the Earth's orbit, James S. McDonald Jr. became a revered figure not only within the halls of McDonald and McDonald Douglas, but also in the larger aerospace community. When he died in 1980, McDonald Douglas was considered the largest private employer in Missouri. In his obituary in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, McDonald was credited with founding, quote, the aerospace giant that advanced the free world into space exploration, end quote. Though he would not live to see the growth of his company through the remainder of the 20th century and the eventual merger with Boeing, James McDonald's legacy can still be seen throughout St. Louis, including McDonald Park, McDonald Planetarium at the St. Louis Science Center, McDonald Hall at Washington University, and James S. McDonald Boulevard on the north side of the St. Louis Lambert International Airport. He is also memorialized with the bust in the Hall of Famous Missourians at the state capitol in Jefferson City. To this day, former employees at McDonald, McDonald Douglas, and Boeing, who worked under him, fondly remember the boss they called Mr. Mac. Everybody liked him. You know, he'd come on and talk to you. And I remember uh, riding on the airplane down to, uh, to Florida with him that day that he took the four of us. He, he had looked up something a little about each person that, that was his guest and come over and talk to you about it. Like he knew how many who your children were and what their names were or, or something else. He, he put those things away. He, he had somebody look it up and he'd, he'd memorize it and come over and, you know, and uh, make some comments. Yeah, he was a very thoughtful man. I had uh, meetings with him every Friday. He came over, I came over, picked him up from his office every Friday, and I had lunch with him after that many times, um, usually once or twice a month, and um, to explain what was going on in the laboratory. And he'd come over to the laboratory to talk to other people. I, I was not necessarily involved with his, with his uh, discussions with other people. And uh, he, he was, he was a, really a smart man, very smart. And he understood a lot of things that, that the normal people with engineering backgrounds do not understand. He understood it. He'd listen to you. And Mr. Mack was a tough taskmaster, so he was, uh, he was a pretty hard man to work for. He uh, uh, expected the impossible and got it. And I think uh, had it not been for uh, if Mr. Mack had not have been there, uh, I, I don't think the space program would be where it is today, to be very honest. Uh, so I, I have a great respect and uh, feel very lucky to have been chosen to work on that program. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. Special thanks also goes to the staff of the State Historical Society of Missouri's St. Louis Research Center for providing digital copies of oral history interviews from their McDonald Space Program in St. Louis collection for this episode. If you are a former employee of McDonald, McDonald, Douglas, or Boeing and will be interested in recording an oral history interview about your life and career, please let us know. We would also be interested in recording oral history interviews with former employees of Rocketdyne and Neo Show. Oral history inquiries can be emailed to rmissouri at shsmo.org. Stay tuned for part three of the summer series when we explore Walter Cronkite and the story of the moon landing. Thank you for listening to the R Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.